2: Welcome to the 355th episode of Just Shoot It A podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing This episode is brought to you by patron Andrew Bourne Who joined at the $15 level I don't know if he thinks he's going to get a hat at that level, because it's the $20 level is the hat level, but I feel like the only reason you would join at 15 is because you think you might get a hat. So, Andrew, let us know what you're thinking. Anyhow, I'm Warren Kaplan.
0: And I'm Matt Enlow. Today, we've got
2: John Casden on the show.
0: He is the showrunner behind the new Disney Plus show Willow, which is a sequel, not a reboot, a sequel to the classic Lucasfilm of the same title. It's getting some of the old cast back together. It's inheriting all this awesome mythology and a fan base and taking it into a new era The show is super fun. I am legitimately a fan. I really enjoyed it. And boy, what a treat to talk to John Caston. I read in other interviews and we talk about a little bit on the show. He was a little boy when that film was being made and got to be
2: on set, like met Warwick Davis. Yeah, well, his dad wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back right around the same time he was born. So he might have um, gotten to go on some cool sets. Just like from his acting credits, he was in The Big Chill. He's in Accidental Tourist. He's in White Earp was in Freaks and Geeks. And that was like where he really got like his break as a writer. He wrote on that show too. And we kind of dive into all that stuff. And I feel like he, he's just super forthright and open. And, you know, we talk about like one of my favorite things, which is like, how do you create scope? How do you make a shot feel big? How do you make a scene feel big? And especially, you know, they shot a lot of stuff during COVID. So they had, you know, a real limited number of extras and things. And they're making this epic, epic show, you know, it's a willow. It's like a film show so
0: we talk about this on the show you know there's lots of Disney plus shows that are really cool and are shot on the volume and you know everyone's on a soundstage and they go home and you know sleep in their own beds uh, this was in the mud this was on location this was just like the way they used to do it back in the day shooting on location in the wilds and we talk about that as well and how there are pros and cons to that there's a tactility to it I think there's something real about it that the old film had and I think the new show really wants to carry forward and also that's that's less convenient
2: than, you know, oh, just yeah. driving over to to a lot in Burbank. Before we talk to him, I wanted to tell you a quick story about what I've been working on lately. I know you wanted to just skip right into it, but... Hit me. Oren, I've been dying to know what I've been working on lately. Dude, I'm working on this uh, branded campaign with the, this guy, Jason Derulo, who's like a musician. And he's also really big on TikTok. He's like the 14th base person on TikTok. And... The point is he's like very present on the internet. He has hundreds of millions of followers across like all the social medias. And I was writing a script for him. And one of the scripts has just him kind of talking to the camera, like monologuing to the camera. And I wrote this thing that I thought was pretty funny and felt very much like Jason Derulo. But just for fun, (laughs) I went to chat GPT And I said, could you please rewrite this in the style of Jason Derulo? And I pasted my all my dialogue. It actually did a pretty good job. And I ended up taking probably five or six of the edits it made and putting them back into my script. And a couple of them weren't even really like more Jason Derulo-y, but they were just like cleaner ways to say something that I was saying, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in like 11 words and that they said it in six words. Uh, sure, yeah. It makes me think of like, um, have you ever used any of the
0: um, writing apps like like Grammarly or, or even, you know, a uh, uh, suggested text in texting or an email, you know, through
2: Yeah, Gmail. but this is the fact that I could it, say in the style of Jason different. Derulo because he exists on if i said in the style mm-hmm. of Orin kaplan it would not have sure. any idea what to do um, I, I guess the reason i bring it up is because there's a lot of conversation about
0: the nature of ai and how it's going to change creativity and take away all of our jobs and things like that the point i'm trying to make is that in the same way that we have integrated searching rather than just knowing certain mm, things yes right Google's maybe taking away the jobs of encyclopedia salespeople, perhaps, but uh, for the most part, it just becomes an additional tool in our tool belt. And in the same way that you have to have a human decide what's worth keeping and what's not with a search term. You had uh, AI rewrite things, but you didn't take it wholesale, right? There still has to be taste is, is, a, is a part of it. And I think that's worth bringing up a little bit as well.
2: But what's interesting is that what I took from it were stylistic choices as opposed mm-hmm. to content choices. In the same way, Grammarly, I think, gives you some stylistic choices, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was telling the person uh, that I'm working on with this that, about it, and she said... She directs also. And she said she's used it for treatments so that she'll make bullet points about what she wants to cover and she'll mm-hmm. just put them in a chat GPT and it turns them into sentences. And then she I mean, she's like a writer by and That's like her main background. And she'll just take it and edit it. And she's like, sure. I just like fly through treatments that way. So it's nuts. I'm more scared of like the mid journey stuff. Like we work so hard to make these beautiful frames and then seeing someone. Like half the people on my Instagram feed are like, check out these insane images I made. They're mm-hmm. so good. And I'm like, what is, it's hard to be, like to admire things anymore, you know, because they're so easy to make in in certain mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to change the way that we um, think about things for sure and perceive yeah, the our tools are pretty much earth shattering in my opinion. Yeah. But anyway, so I just wanted to tell you about that and tell our listeners. It's a fun, very practical way of, of using emerging
0: tools and technology.
2: It's cool. Well, uh, before we talk to John Kathan, I want to remind people that we have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot It Pod. It is a, a place where you can support us. You can Hear more interviews like the one we have with John Kasdan, all the other amazing filmmakers that we have on the podcast. I think our goal here is to extract useful nuggets out of all these hundreds of different filmmakers. So hopefully you can use the stuff you like in your own career. I know Matt and I have done that for ourselves. So if you want to support us, dollar, two dollars, four dollars, fifteen dollars, or even at the twenty dollar level, the level where you will get a personal just shoot it podcast hat that I will mail you. Patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. We'd love to see you there. Speaking of patrons, I just had a coffee, a virtual coffee with Jamie Sadler, one of our oldest and truest and uh, most committed patrons who I believe listens to every episode. So I, I like to mention him a lot because uh, it makes me happy to think that he's uh, enjoying us talking about him. So thanks, Jamie Sadler. And thanks to everyone else that's a patron. And let's talk to John Kasdan.
0: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which
2: is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, get 30, ready to get 20 20, to 20, get 20, 20 get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
3: slash $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. Okay, John, thanks for coming into our podcast. A lot of our listeners are filmmakers. They want to know how to do what you do. Yeah,
1: it's a funny thing. You, you kind of constantly sort of feel yourself getting that question and like, well, how do you get into it? And, and what you find more and more is that everyone's path is so uniquely their own and 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 I'm a particularly strong example of that because I sort of grew up in the business and then and then started writing really young in in television and have sort of been writing ever since. But but certainly my my way in and my way toward toward actual filmmaking has always been to just write and keep writing and hate writing but do it anyway.
2: Yeah. I saw according to IMDB, you're exactly one month older than me. I'm sure you get this a lot, but it seems like you were born and then your dad wrote Empire Strikes Back and Raiders. He was working on those movies
1: even even before. And I think uh, the fact that his career sort of began a little bit was one of the things that empowered my parents to have that second kid. They're like, we should sure. maybe afford more diapers or whatever we need to do. And and so I I, I was sort of born right at, at a moment when when he was able to make a living as a as a screenwriter uh, for the first time in his life, and and by the time I was old enough to understand what was happening, he was a director and 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 a successful one at that.
2: Yeah, it's we, Matt and I. Matt has a one year old. How old is she? 15, 14 months? Three, 13 um, months. 13 months,
0: thirteen yeah. months. And I
2: have a twenty month yeah. old and a six year old, and it's like it's the thing we talk about on the podcast all the time because we started this podcast seven years ago before my daughter was born, and we're like, our kids gonna ruin our careers, you know? And I think.
1: no it's but it's certainly a lot to handle and and my brother who's got three of his own is off in atlanta shooting a movie right now and he you know he feels it it's it's hard Mm -hmm. to, to balance shooting and i admire anyone who does
2: so you started writing it was Freaks and Geeks is that kind of your first kind of big writing job?
1: Yeah, I was writing spec scripts uh sort of before that and and had found a, a agent by sending around a bunch of specs and 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 sharing them with everyone I could possibly convince to read them like TV specs or like feature action movies which was really where my heart was. Uh, I was sort of taking meetings around the world around the town but uh also going to NYU and and studying film and uh mm-hmm. And Freaks and Geeks sort of happened right as I was finishing my first year at NYU and and the opportunity to to, to sort of write one episode came up and uh, it allowed for me to sort of be present for the, the entire life of that show, which was really mm-hmm. the education I was, I think, really
0: after. I think famously that was kind of the move of that show. They were like, oh, we'll hire you for, for one episode, but we get basically a staff around the whole time.
1: I was not experienced and quite young but I had real life very immediate high school experience which Mm -hmm. is the kind of thing that Judd and Paul liked they liked diversity among their writers and and people who could bring really what they were hoping for I think more than anything was people who had funny stories about Mm -hmm. being a teenager and they didn't know that much about Structure and and building out a, a you know a, a long form drama like that. So I, I got to be sort of witness to to their education in it and and my own and and I met people who would become my closest friends as I, I grew up and 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 one of them was was Mike White and he sort of sent me off to Dawson's Creek where he'd come
2: from um, mm-hmm. when that show ended. Do you do like the studying like when you write like do you go places and?
1: Well, one thing we did with Willow is we did a we did a sort of a cursory scouting thing in Wales just to mm-hmm. sort of get a sense of where we could go. And frankly, I wish I'd been able to do more because, you know, one of the challenges of a show like this is you never have enough time or enough money or mm-hmm. any of the resources you sort of expect. And I, I tend to write quite big and ambitious stuff and then sort of spend most of the shoot being slightly disappointed that it can't <laughs> be what I had hoped it would be.
0: Well, let me tell you—you were you on the right show, my
1: friend. <laughs> yeah, welcome to our world, John. A tip I would say for trying to get scale in these in these kind of fantasy adventure shows that where you where you are up against it is to lean into wherever you are, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and with whales, we we tried to shoot out the three hour radius of where we were to whatever extent we could, and I think we did a good job. We had a great location team and. And they really knew the area and the crew knew the area. So 100%
0: of the show is in Wales. Is that right?
1: That's not technically accurate because Mm -hmm. the episode you'll see tonight, which uh, shoots uh, sort of in a forest area that borders the Puzzlewood Forest, Mm -hmm. crosses over into the UK for moments. In fact, there was a hilarious drama where a, a sickly little mouse was found on the set. And one of the Teamsters took it to its van and unknowingly had traveled it across country lines and invoked a (laughs) diplomatic disaster when the mouse died and and the Welsh were held responsible.
2: And it was all we could do to extradite the mouse. Sure, yeah. Did you guys do any volume? I mean, it's an ILM show, right, or a Lucasfilm show, right? No, we didn't. We, uh,
1: you know, the thing about the volume is it's a it's a wildly expensive thing to do, and and you really have to plan for it. You have to you have to use it enough to sort of validate its its expense and, and the mm-hmm. amount of 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 time and 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 work that needs to go into figuring out exactly what you're going to do with it. You know. Mm-hmm. So what we did use though was we used it we used the translate for for uh several episodes that we then enhanced digitally with sort of bringing the sky to life and mm-hmm.
2: stars and all that so the translate so for our our listeners that don't know it's it's a giant basically backdrop that you can light from behind and you can make it look like day or night based on how you light it right light it from the front it's day and from the back it's night it was a great tool actually for what
1: we needed, you know, it's like a lot of these things and and the creature effects being sort of the perfect example. They, these old tools tend to be really great when wedded to Mm -hmm. digital tech in in some way. So like the puppet characters we created that had a digital element in them are our most successful sort of
0: goes. Yeah. I'm dying to ask you about how you approached Having, you know, a film that like in my heart and mind is like kind of like a, a perfect example of that old school ILM, you know, matte paintings and stop motion, you know, I, I feel like it's it's a, an ideal effects film in, in many ways. And now you have all of these tools, right? As we were toiling away in, in Wales, sort of in the pouring rain and mud,
1: my dad was back home in his house in Los Angeles making a documentary about ilm Mm -hmm. and he did Mm -hmm. the entire documentary literally without ever leaving his house you know and it's (laughs) it's it's one of my favorite things he's done in in quite some time but i would you know we talk on the phone every once a week or something i'd be like how's it going he'd be like it's going great Mm -hmm. i I was in the Mm -hmm. pool and then i directed for a little while and (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it's incredible <laughs> how's the, in the mud toilet. son
1: <laughs> but one of the things that that ilm documentary does beautifully is it sort of talks about that period mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. goes into that period in in their evolution you know and and what a transformative moment it was because it sort of wed the stop-motion genius of 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 those guys you know who are doing that and and even the map painting world and all of that with this sort of burgeoning digital mm-hmm. thing that was that was happening with, with morphing and 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 technology and it was sort of at the really at the, the last of the age of the sort of big effects movies done in the old style and the first of the, those done in the new you know and so
0: how it, it, it's it's so classic and i think that the new show does a really great job of paying homage to that look and style and feel right and i'm curious on a practical level how do you like it's easy to say like make sure that it feels painterly or like i want it to feel tactile or whatever but how do you literally get a team of people to make it look the way you want it to look
1: yeah well i mean one thing that i really had to my advantage is that i had been very present on on force awakens and and kathy had sort of produced force awakens in a on a granular level. And then Michelle Rejuan, who was running Lucasfilm at the time we were shooting the show, had come from being J.J.'s assistant on Force Awakens, um, or rather producer on Force Awakens had been assistant prior. And so all three of us had sort of had come together on the set of that movie. and And J.J. had really set a precedent in a great way of leaning into practical effects <laughs> in any opportunity he could and then embracing the tools of digital effects to make that a more seamless, more elegant bit of work. And, and we tried to sort of just embrace that approach to, to whatever extent we could. And one of the great assets of it was the Neil Scanlon who'd done all the creature work on, on the star Wars movies. I sort of ran into this project with the, just assumption mm-hmm. that we were going to mm-hmm. be taking Neil with us. And from day one, sort of said, well, Neil's on the show, you know, he'll, he'll be with us. And there was never a moment when he was even asked whether or not he wanted to do it. It was just kind of assumed he'd do it. I should try that. (laughs) It was sort of an interesting thing where he was sort of, they, they were, they were on Andor at the same time and, and sort of being stretched very thin, but liked the idea of working in a fantasy world and doing these kind of creature work that we were, we were talking about doing And then the other element of it that was critical, I think, to what you're talking about is that it was really important that we didn't shoot on the volume and that we gave Mm -hmm. it a location look. Mm -hmm. Because so much of what resonated for me about the movie was this tactile, muddy, wet world that Mm -hmm. Warwick was sort of sloshing his way through felt so real to me mm-hmm. that, uh, we really wanted to achieve that. And, you know, if I had it to do over again, I, I don't know if I would have done it with quite as much gusto because it's hell out there when you're, you know, when you've got eight actors and you're in the rain and it's really cold and none of them want to be there, but it certainly pays off in the, in the show itself, which has the feel of a. Of an '80s fantasy, for sure. Know?
2: As a kid, like that's what I loved about Willow. Is I, it's so easy to imagine yourself just running through the sure. woods and doing yeah. all these crazy things they're doing.
1: Yeah, it's a big part of the power of it. And then when you add in things like, you know, the dogs, even in their sort of ridiculous costumes, they had the movement and the the, the ferocity of real dogs.
0: Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, just
1: gave the whole thing a kind of uh, experiential reality for children that was that was scary and fresh and and
2: a big deal yeah i'm curious uh just another question about the look like obviously this is a tv show it's episodic it's made for tv was there ever a question in anyone's mind about shooting anamorphic versus 16 by
1: 9 no you know i mean a lot of it has to do with with the streamer and how best to sort of use the the shape of the the image there and how they kind of collate their data and, and process everything internationally. But what we knew we sort of always wanted was as cinematic a look as we could get, you know, and and to kind of keep it feeling like I think one of the things Disney is doing well is they're they're sort of trying to create a, a, a filmic experience. Mm-hmm. at home particularly with these lucasfilm branded even more i'd say than with the marvel stuff it's like they're really trying to, to preserve something that feels cinematic and 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 wide and and a big mm-hmm. big frame you know right
2: i like what you were saying earlier about scale like are like do you have any kind of go-to tricks whether it's in the writing in the producing or in the directing
1: you know, we're trying to lean into sort of our bigger vistas and and creating a show that feels like the scale of the world that these characters are inhabiting is much bigger than them. And it was always a battle I was sort of fighting, which is the, that it never feels small. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it can be tricky because one of the the challenges of of shooting Willow was that we shot it in the sort of depths of COVID. and mm-hmm. And the way in which that mm-hmm. most literally affects you other than the years of your life it takes off with worrying about who's going to (laughs) get sick is that you just can't have as many extras on the set as you Mm -hmm. would like to you know so Mm -hmm. what we'd often have are spaces that were too big and not enough people to fill them you know and that was a constant source of frustration and 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 sort of nagging difficulty was like, you want hundreds of extras, you're going to get 50.
2: Mm -hmm, Right. And I know this is hyper-specific, but what are like some tricks, what are some solutions to kind of overcome that?
1: Well, one thing that, you know, we did a couple of times is we tried to do some crowd replacement, you know, which is an expensive and and tricky process in and of itself because you have to sort of film the individual elements, which is a time crush, you know, Mm -hmm. so you're off, you've got some unit of your crew off somewhere shooting extras and plates of extras and and then you know you only sort of have as many as you have which can be a little tricky
2: like you mean you have like 20 different versions of extras and you, you're tripling them or
1: you only double them so many times mm-hmm. and really what you'd love to do is you'd love to be able to to do everybody and then be able to to you know mm-hmm. intersperse them as much as possible because it's it's tricky but then there's the actual cost of of laying them into the to the shots and and sort of rotoing everything together so it's it's not a cheap solution to the problem and like you know the the cheaper and and certainly more more effective method was that you would have people cross the camera walk around behind the camera and then cross again you know and you would you would have them cross closer and further away and keep it as busy as you could. Yeah. But what yeah. you never got and and is really hard to achieve is huge crowds that sort of were specific to, you know, the great sort of epic stories <laughs> of, of <laughs> our lifetime and and things like even those first three Lord of the Rings movies, it's like you get the sense of thousands of extras dressed as orcs, you know, hundreds at least out there sort of fighting. And that was always really, really difficult to achieve. But what, it, what isn't as difficult to achieve in Wales are these expansive landscapes, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. an hour and a half out from where we were shooting at Dragon Studios, you'd get these vast fields and these sort of distant mountains and a sense of a, a real fantasy world, you know. And we were really shooting to that as much as possible, going out on location whenever we could Sort of trying to do as little on stage as as we had to. Also, just practically because we were constantly turning over our stages to turn them into some sure. other sure. set. You know, one of the big challenges of a show like Willow is that, as a quest that's constantly moving forward, very few of the sets are are amortizable mm-hmm. over this mm-hmm. season. You know, you really, we really had almost nowhere. There's can... no central perk in Willow. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Surely if we do a season two, that'll be the very first set we have is the central perk. You can keep sure. I mean, <laughs> the, the, sure. the pub, you know, it, it speaks to, to what we're sort of saying about wanting to do something that felt really cinematic it was just like, you wanted to give people this kind of sense of a, of a, of a long journey that they're going on with these characters over the course of the season, the way Willow really Successfully does that, even though they seem their their path is a bit circuitous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do seem to be traveling the whole movie, you know, and sort of getting further from home. So that by the end, when he's sort of facing Babmorda in the castle, you feel like he's a long way from where he started, you know. And and I thought that that feeling was a big part of what Willow meant to me, you know. And mm-hmm. and I certainly wanted this to feel like. By the end of this season, they've gone way farther, you know, and, and, and you've earned that journey along the way. The one thing I knew I wasn't going to do this, there wasn't going to be a scene at the end where suddenly you cut to him getting back home and they just all hug. And I wanted mm-hmm. the distances to feel real and, and like they were going to take a long time. And, you know, I, I like to imagine right now somewhere Willow is out there trying to find his way.
2: So, John, you you obviously directed too. you've directed a couple of features. Back in the day, um, I was curious why on Willow, the show you're showrunning, obviously a showrunner encompasses probably a lot of things the director does.
1: I love directing. It's the most fun part of the job, certainly. Um, But, you know, they all sort of a lot of people had said to me that, that early on that, like, you know, and I was I was very gung ho about doing it. And they said, you know, you should do it for a year because you'll be shocked at how every second of your life is occupied in in running the show and and they said you know Favaro doesn't really do it and these shows tend to be sort of most effective when the showrunner is mm-hmm. fully show running and I was skeptical and 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 certainly grouchy about it and and by the time I was halfway through the season there was very little way I could have I could have done more than what I was doing mm-hmm. on the thing um and even so, it's frustrating because there are things that you've like. Well, that's not how I would have done that, and and I I, I write in a very sort of specific sound, and 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 you constantly kind of want to be there for every second mm-hmm. of it. But the challenge is, you know, you're you're almost always prepping
2: and cutting as you're shooting because you have a schedule like a release schedule to hit. You really
1: do and and you've got your editors for a certain amount of time visual effects I'm assuming is taking a long time. Absolutely. I mean, started visual effects work probably a, a, a week or two after we started shooting, which was May of 21, and mm-hmm. they have been on until about 2 weeks ago.
0: Great.
1: So, yeah. you know, it's like every year you're, you're in a review every week, you're you're sort of moving it forward at every moment and and what you find frankly is that sort of part of the necessary work of being a director which is keeping the crew moving keeping the next setup happening is not always the most valuable use of your time
0: i can imagine you must have been in a moment where you're like in a review or something kind of like in the in the sludge of it and at least you can think to yourself well someone's shooting right now and i both are happening at the same time and maybe there's a little comfort to that
1: you have a remote monitor
0: at every minute of Mm -hmm. everything so you know when they're not shooting Mm -hmm. is that crazy making though that that would that would that would mess me up i feel like it like out of sight out of mind a little bit i mean to be honest for the comedy it's like you
1: Mm -hmm. know jokes particularly sarcasm heavy comedy like I tend to write, they just they either sort of are getting the joke or they're not. And if you're not sort of on top of it, you're you're batting average, depending on who and what the circumstance. But it's not consistent enough to not sort of feel like you need to be. To have an eye across it if you want to get a certain thing, which I always sort of
2: do you guys do like rehearsals and things and like tone I'm, I'm assuming tone meetings, obviously.
1: I mean, I was on set as much as humanly possible, and then when we were on, we had our studio in in Wales that was sort of our home base, mm-hmm. and I was able to sort of move pretty smoothly from the production designer's office to the editing room to the set. Uh, and it was the days were were full um in that respect. but certainly, What I imagine would be great is that when everything is done and when your show is locked, the way Mike White does it, which is to direct all of it and be able to cross-board the entire Mm -hmm. series, feels like the most efficient way to get what you're really
2: after. Yeah. Well, it helps when it's all, yeah, in one location. It does. That really,
1: and it's a beautiful place where it's always warm and gorgeous.
2: So a show like Willow, an action thriller, sarcastic comedy, fantasy, epic, cinematic series. Do you guys storyboard all yeah, of it? Well, we some of it is a lot.
1: We do. We have a great, you know, we use Third Floor, who does a lot of the previs all around town, and and they're sort of the best in in the world at this, and they're they're sort of all over the world, and and we have sort of a dedicated editor and a dedicated team doing our bigger sequences across the season sort of building out the big action beats Mm -hmm. and really, really trying to invest in doing well what we want to do well. And then the the other stuff, we hope to do boards for everything we can and sort of, because you find that in that kind of a time crunch, unless you've really planned it out before, you're not going to get the epic shot that makes it, Mm-hmm. You're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be struggling enough to get the coverage and to get what you need to finish the scene. That unless there's a very sort of in a strong intent to get something visual and dynamic and exciting, then it's the first thing you 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 won't yeah, get.
0: One hundred percent. Can you talk to us a little bit about how one approaches previs? Like how how do what's step one on a, a process like that?
1: We had a great storyboard artist who who uh, I would sort of walk through a sequence with our storyboard artist. She
2: would do a like you would just talk to her about it. You're not mm-hmm. you're not doing sketches or anything. And
1: you know I speak almost exclusively in references to other movies. Mm-hmm. So I'd show her a shot. I'd show her an image from something. We'd talk about the kind of
2: visual energy we wanted to have. When you're speaking, referencing other movies, do you spend time finding references in other movies or just stuff that you remember from? You're your like, life hold on, this shot from Alien, and you pull it up. Yeah.
1: And it's yeah. usually stuff that, like, you know, when you go, when you've had to sort of suffer through writing one of these sequences, you've drawn these references in your head long ago. So they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty easily accessible to what you're trying to do, you mm-hmm. know? So you're, you're
0: not you're creating it from the whole
1: plot every, in the moment. Yeah. That is, yeah. And you're using them in every in every aspect of of the pre-production in terms of like, you know, the the sort of concepting the various weapons and vehicles and sort of the costumes of a sequence into the storyboarding of the sequence into what inevitably becomes the sort of previous stage, and then of course the biggest challenge because these previous guys are great and the the shots are. Always exciting is having the time and the resources to get it mm-hmm. um, when you're also trying to get scenes that are heavy in dialogue and performances and all that
2: stuff. Do you have like a show bible or like a vi- some visual language that you? I know you have four different directors on this show.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we we do, and you sort of build out a huge book of of sort of concept art and 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 reference art and all
2: this stuff is there ever rules like this is how we shoot overs we never do two shots we always go as wide as we can to show the environment or
1: we try to instill certain things which are like in television you know the need for for close-ups is is paramount you know in terms of entering the the characters and getting tighter and you know Directors who go into a show like Willow or a show like Star Wars with a very filmic intention, you know, you show up on day one you think I'm going to make a movie. I'm a television director. and I'm going to make a movie. And and you sort of find yourself constantly saying like, yeah, OK, you are making a movie, but you also need to get like close ups like a TV show, because this is how this stuff works a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more than not, where our time would be wasted is with Attempts to do sort of mid-sized things, you know, masters that are cool and move in a fun way, that took up ate up so much of the day mm-hmm. in in choreography mm-hmm. and in planning that we were strapped when it came time to get into the performance and and where the scenes would really live, you know. And if I had advice for for directors coming into television, it's like, you know, it's it's often worth starting with the coverage. And letting the performances get there, you know, figure out what mm. the performances are, figure out, make sure you've got it. And then you have a lot more freedom and a lot more fun to, to, to play around. Yeah,
2: I love that. In, in features, we always hear the opposite, right? You kind of work out the performance in the wide shot and then go in for the close-up.
1: I've I found working with actors who have very different methodology to how they work some Mm -hmm. of whom it's a lot up front and there's a lot of nervous energy and others who sort of ease into figuring it out and who are very consistent and can do it again and again. You know, I find that if I can sort of put everyone to ease that the moments of the scene are there, Mm -hmm. then there's a lot more joy in the sort of exploratory filmmaking around it. And when you're able to marry that with a real plan, if you can get in and get the coverage and then say, okay, I have a shot that I've been wanting to do all day, and here's how it's gonna work. You're gonna you guys are gonna do the same thing, but the camera's gonna do this, then you really have a a chance at least at something that's sort of exciting and kinetic.
0: Are you laying the blocking in? that you kind of have in the back of your head for that fun shot into that coverage to begin with, or, or how, how cause that was always the thing that makes me.
1: You constantly finding your, your locations are not exactly what you'd hope they'd be. And, and mm-hmm. one of the things I found incredibly useful is like, you know, anytime there's an opportunity to rehearse in the location or to mm-hmm. stunt mm-hmm. viz in the location, we had a great, stunt team who would go out and shoot on an iPhone and bring it back and you'd look at it and you'd know what you were really after and what you were a little less focused or urgently needed to get, you know, and that ended up being incredibly helpful. But the more prep the directors did, the the better off they were, you know, And, (laughs) and when they did less, it often cost us. One of the ways in which we were able to afford to make the show was that you know you're constantly looking for savings in in various ways and and one was that we used entirely uk based directors oh interesting a huge saving but also a huge limitation on who you can pull from Mm -hmm. um particularly when you want to hire lots of different kinds of directors and and try different things But we found four people that that were passionate about the show and loved the show. And and the first of them was this was Stephen Wolfenden, who had come from being a a second unit director for David Yates on the Harry Potter movies and just had a kind of grounded day to day experience on getting Mm -hmm. it done. That was invaluable and stayed with the show throughout and sort of was our cleanup man on everything we needed. And then we had some younger people like Debs Patterson and, and Jamie Childs, who had both sort of are at the beginnings of their career and 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 both super talented. And then this director Philippa Lothorpe, who had uh, worked on the crown and brought a a gravitas and a and a touch with actors that was Really nice, and and that I think they appreciate it.
2: When you meet these directors or interview them, what are you what are you looking for from a conversation with them? You I'm know, assuming you've yeah, already seen or
1: someone who can you sort of can get along with your sort of sense of humor and your 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 your, your <laughs> internal references and knows what you're talking about. You know, a little bit. And, and it's, you'd be shocked at how difficult that can be to find, which is just someone who, who sort of, you can reference a shot in a movie from 20 years ago and they'll know, Oh yeah, that, you know, you mean that, that <laughs> right. tracking shot from, yeah, that, that tracking shot from Lord of the Rings when they're on the road and, you know, and just like sort of that kind of familiarity is a real gift because it's, it's all about finding people you can be as specific as possible with what you want.
2: I mean, obviously you, you mentioned Philippa and working on The Crown and her ability with actors. Do you, because it's a TV show and you're, you know, by episode three, four, three to eight, these actors probably know their characters pretty well.
1: They had me and and that really changes the dynamic. I think on a lot of these, I think specifically in the UK, but although I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but it, it, the showrunner isn't as omnipresent oh, interesting. as we are here in the States. And and the actors would sort of knew that they were coming to me if they wanted to talk about their character, where their character had been and where it was going. And mm-hmm. and again, for the comedy. And it meant that the division of, of labors was slightly skewed in that
2: way. Well, awesome. Yeah. Super exciting show.
1: This is great kind of questions
0: that can only be asked by other directors. Years and years ago now, we had a director on when he realized that we weren't going to ask him what it's like to work with The Rock. He hung out for two hours. You know what I mean? Like we used to do it in person and it's late at night. We'd have a beer. I mean, I saw an interview
1: with, with Fincher once where he was like, you know, the hardest thing is you never have enough time. And the whole legend of Fincher is he didn't care how much time. It's like yeah. I think I that even that guy who was so empowered to do mm-hmm. exactly what he wanted was feeling this same thing of. Of just being up against it every minute is really the unifying to me the unifying theme in in all this work. It's like
2: it's the unifying theme of all of life is we just need more time just need a little more
1: time